Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? What a good morning it's been so far already, right? Um, huge um, special shout out thanks to Clinton Jen. Um, yesterday afternoon, the text started coming in that, that the whole worship team was sick. And um, it was, you know, I think I'll be okay. What should we do? Maybe we should ask Clinton Jen to come in. And so um, last minute, they stepped in to Toledo today. So thank you guys for, for being willing to step in and, and pray for uh, Lindsay and the team as they're all battling colds and flus and things that, um, you know, COVID may be gone, but the flu was like, I'm still here. You know, so that's kind of making its rounds right now. But um, I'm excited for today. A little more on the um, Easter. We're going to have two services. Um, I would love for everybody here that, that calls ch- the, this church home. Pick a service to come and attend and, and bring friends and family to come with you. And then pick a service to serve at. We're going to have a lot of guests and visitors. So it would be great to have everyone here enjoying service together and then serving in the next service. You know, what, whatever one you choose to do. But that would be a fun way to impact our community and let them know that we're excited that they are here to join us. Um, I know that many hands make light work. And when we all team together, we can do amazing things. And it's going to be a lot of fun that day as well. Now, in order to, um, to get ready for Easter, we've been talking about walking with Jesus. And we're walking through the last week of the life of Jesus. So today is going to be, like I said, kind of an audible, whereas we're going to talk about Palm Sunday today. Palm Sunday is not for another month, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to do it today. And uh, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the way Jesus entered into his, his last triumphant entry on Palm Sunday here. So if you have your, uh, your Bibles with you, we're going to start in Deuteronomy, actually. Deuteronomy chapter 20, and, um, and I'll pray for us as we dive into uh, day one of the last week of Jesus' life. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to come together. We get to celebrate. God, I thank you that you are so good, that, um, that, that we get to just offer our hearts up to you and have you be the king of our lives. God, I pray that as we unpack this, this last week of, of the life of Jesus, that we all, we learn something new, we're, we're changed in some way, God, and um, that just you reveal more of your character and your heart to us. And we ask this in your name, amen. All right, so what I like it, think of, think of the last time you were on the brink of victory in something. The brink of victory. You know, you're, you're playing a game of some kind. Maybe it was a board game or a card game. And some, sometimes I've played some board games with you guys. You can get really, really competitive. But you're on the brink of victory. You're going to win. That, that feeling, oh, your heart starts pumping. You're waiting for your next turn. You know what's going to happen. Or, um, or maybe you're, you're watching your, your favorite sports team on TV, and they're on the, the brink of a Super Bowl championship or World Series or NBA Finals. You, you know that feeling, right? Your team is going to win. You are going to win. You are about to celebrate something huge. And if, if it's a board game, nobody else gets to celebrate that, right? That's your victory. That is your win, and it's going to be awesome. The declaration of who is the best is coming. The end is here. We're getting ready to do the celebrating. And yes, in my house, when we win a board game or a card game, there is celebrating. It's usually Stephanie, but it's celebrating. We get pretty competitive. Now, think of that moment. And I bet you now, a lot of you, if you're in the, the sports fans, you can probably think of the last time that your team won the Super Bowl. And you can think of when the Seahawks clobbered the Broncos, right? You watch that game, you can replay it in your mind from the first snap to the, you know, the safety from Peyton Manning. You guys were like, this is ours. And the Seahawks did. They went on and crushed them. I remember going all the way back to the 90s. It's been a while. The Niners' last Super Bowl win. They crushed the Chargers. Just obliterated them. It wasn't even a close game. Steve Young had five touchdown passes. It was like wonderful, right? On that same brink of victory we can think of, we also know the defeat feeling. 
We also know those Super Bowl losses, right? What happened in the Seahawks, their last Super Bowl, that fourth quarter devastation. Same thing happened to the Niners in their last two Super Bowl games, right? Fourth quarter devastation. But the feeling of being about to win is like no other. When you're invested in something and you know it's about to happen, you just, you can taste it. You can taste the victory. You want the victory so bad. It's easy to say people like to win. I haven't met somebody who likes to lose. You may meet people who don't mind it, like, oh, it's okay, but you don't look forward to it, right? I'm going to play this game so I can lose. That's usually not the point of playing the game in the first place. We like the feeling of victory. You like a championship story. You like an underdog story. That's why so many movies are captivating. That when the underdog comes, that's, we can relate to it in a lot of ways, right? We love to see the person who was not supposed to win come forward and win the story. It's captivating. It's intriguing. It draws us in. Well, at this point in Scripture, the last week of Jesus' life, these people needed a victory. We, we, have, we have the people here in Israel. They, they are just in Jerusalem. They are dying for a victory, living under oppression and the Roman rule for so many years. This was not the ideal way of life. And they've been living under the belief and the prophecy that the Messiah was coming. There was going to be eventually a victory. And this is what fueled their hope. But they needed it so desperately. They were at a point prior to this where they couldn't even taste it. But now Palm Sunday is here. Jesus is about to make his triumphal entry. And at this point, this is that feeling now that I was just talking about. We're on the, the cusp of victory. We are here. This is our moment. See, even in the Old Testament, Moses wrote scriptures, and there was talk about Israel and people bringing victory and how God would bring victory to each other or to us. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says this. For the Lord your God is one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. How much different would scripture be if it said the opposite? God's going to go fight for you, but man, it's looking sketchy. Not much hope there, right? Not, not much for us to live for. It wouldn't be much for them to live for and hope for either, but it has all this confidence. God is coming and he's going to bring you victory. Can you imagine that pregame speech if your coach said, we're going to go out there and try our hardest, but man, they're going to clobber us. And your team's like, thanks, coach. You know? But this, this is the ultimate, you know, God is with you and he is going to bring you victory. And throughout biblical history, people had their ups and downs. They had moments where they were victorious. They had moments, though, where they rebelled and there were some consequences that didn't look like victory. But ultimately, time and time again, we see God consistently delivering them. We see God consistently holding his promise that brings them through to what he told them they were going to have. Time in, time again. God constantly gives them victory. But now... At this point in scripture, there had been 400 years of silence of people wondering what's happening. There, there were no prophets proclaiming messages. 400 years of waiting for something to happen, and then Jesus is born. Jesus comes at this point now. He's been around for 33 years. In the past three years of that, he's been doing what we call his ministry, and you read it in the Gospels. He's been healing the lame and healing the blind, and he's been performing miracles and showing people the love of God for three years. There's a lot of people that love what he's doing, and there's a lot of powerful people who hate what he's doing because it's total counterculture to what they had been trying to do, and it was overthrowing their power in the nation. But people needed Jesus. They needed him then just like we need him now. Now, I like to imagine this kind of fanfare when I think of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Like I said, as far as the people knew, they were there on the brink of victory. He'd been revealing himself for three years now. They, they have an idea of who he is. Some of them haven't quite come to understand exactly what he is, but they have the idea that he is coming. He is now here. Victory is upon him. He is there to free them. He has come to save and deliver, but it was not going to happen the way that they thought. 
They, they, they wanted a certain kind of deliverance. But there was a reason for the fanfare. There was a reason for the cheering. There was, there was a reason for all the shouting and the celebrating. They knew the king was here. And as we look through this passage today, we're going to see that this is more than just a famous man riding in on a donkey. This was so much more than that. There's so much prophecy being fulfilled here, so much destiny being coming to, to light, and so much uh, foreshadowing into what was going to come in this act. We're going to see that Jesus showed he was a very diverse but amazing type of king the way that he entered on this donkey. So Jesus and his disciples, they were on the Jericho Road. They had already climbed up most of the pathway that had turned them for 17 miles to where they could look out over Jerusalem. And as they approached Jerusalem and they came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus said this in Matthew 21, 1 through 3. He says, go to the village ahead of you at once and you will find a donkey tied there with, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples knew pretty much do what Jesus says, right? Three years following him, he says things, it happens every single time. So they go in looking for this mystery donkey that they're just supposed to borrow that's just going to be waiting there. And sure enough, they go. They did as he instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on this. Now, however trivial this may have seemed, this, this, is, this is beyond just Jesus saying, hey, go into town, there's going to be a donkey with a colt next to it, bring it all to me, I'm going to ride this thing. It seems like a trivial request, right? It's like a friend saying, hey, can you, go, can you go borrow this from someone for me? But there's so much being said here. Matthew explains this in chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. He unpacks a little bit of why this is so important. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt on the foal of a donkey. Jesus right there was fulfilling prophecy. And he was fulfilling prophecy before he was even in town looking at it. He told his disciples, go get this. And the simple act of riding on a donkey was something that was written so long ago coming to fruition. Of all the things that Jesus said and did between his birth and his death and resurrection, uh, there's one that Charles Jennings, the organizer of the popular chorus, Hendel's Messiah. Most of us know that, that popular chorus. We hear it in, all the time in different um, movies or, or shows or at Christmas time. It's very popular, but he chose to include the triumphal entry. He alluded to it by uh, quoting the prophet Zechariah when he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes to thee. He is the righteous savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heavens. See, Jennings made a good choice when he talked about this because it was by getting on a donkey and riding into Jerusalem that Jesus announced he was coming. He was not just a crowd favorite, a fan man that everyone knew who was doing amazing things. He was proclaiming that he was Israel's messianic king. He was the one prophesied for. He was the one they'd been waiting for. He was coming to deliver them and it was all done by simply riding on a donkey. But by doing this, he showed us that he was, reassure, he was reassuring the people then he was the rightful king. They lived in a time where there were, they, they went through lots of kings in scripture and, and King Herod ruling over him right now was not a great guy at all. But by Jesus doing this, he was establishing he is the, excuse me, the rightful king coming in. The people of Israel had always understood Zechariah's prophecy uh, to refer to the Messiah to God's anointed king. And Zechariah said this in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when Jesus mounted this donkey, this was not just any donkey. This was specifically a purebred colt, as Zechariah promised. He was presenting himself as the promised king. Not just a visitor, not just Mr. Popular. This was the promised king. By his actions, by just writing in without saying a word, he was literally saying, behold, the king comes to you. Behold, the king comes to you. Now, Jesus never did anything by coincidence, right? When we read, we read through scripture, we see the conversations that he had, the people that he talked to. Everything had a place. Everything had a purpose. Every conversation had a meaning. There was never anything where Jesus got to do something and go, man, I'm glad that worked out, right? He knew what he was doing. Everything was done for a reason. And the Jewish people, they knew the, old, the, the scriptures, they knew what was written, and many people in the crowd would have known the words of Zechariah. And so seeing this happen, they know the scriptures. Now they're seeing it live. They are literally seeing the prophecies come true. This was a really, really big deal. Some of them could have even remembered that when Solomon became Israel's king, you know, he was presented on a donkey, the donkey of his father David. One clue that the people of Jerusalem recognized this connection is that when they saw Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, they said in Matthew 21, 9, they said this, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. The people are connecting the dots at this point, right? They see him coming on a donkey, and it's like, this is how Solomon did it. This is prophecy. This is right. This is what's supposed to happen. This is the right man. This is the right king. By using that title, they were declaring that. This is the right king. In the line of our greatest king, the line of King David, they recognized that he came in the name of the Lord. And this is often overlooked, but this also is talked about in the book of Genesis. Genesis talks about how, this is important, how important this is going to be in the life of Jesus. In scripture, Jacob had a prophecy that meant Israel's true king was going to come from the tribe of Judah. Long before Zechariah, Jacob announced, pronounced this in Genesis chapter 49. He says this, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether the, his donkey to a vine, and his colt to the choicest branch. Jacob said that in some way, when the Messiah comes, he would be associated with the colt of a donkey. I love that what is, what is hinted at in the Old Testament, in the very first book of the Old Testament, pulls all the way through to Palm Sunday, the last day of uh, the, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. I love that scripture does that so many times. You see things talked about, and Jesus fulfills these prophecies. He's the only one that could have fulfilled so many prophecies. Now, if Jesus is the king, then all of his loyal subjects, they, they start to recognize his kingship. They start to have this fanfare in this party. They do this by calling him the son of David. And they start laying their cloaks down on the ground for him to walk across, for the donkey to walk across as he's riding it into town. Now, this was an ancient custom. In, in biblical times, and in, uh, even med medieval and ancient times, people would throw their garments down as a carpet for the royal king, as a sign of we're, th this is what we have to offer. We, we are not as high as you. We're going to put literally our possessions on the ground for you to walk on. For some of you who wear and love nice clothes, you're cringing at the thought of it right now. Not just putting on the ground, but having a donkey walk across it while it's on the ground, right? I can think of some of you saying, if I knew that party was coming, I know what I'm going to wear because I don't care about this one, right? This was a big deal. They were literally laying the stage, setting the stage for him to come with royal fanfare. This was a clear sign of recognition for who he was and what he meant to them. As Jesus came in, they threw their coats down. They threw them down to recognize him. And we don't do that today. 
But what we do today is we get to recognize his sovereignty by laying our hearts before him. When they were laying down their clothes, the mirror for that today is us literally laying down our hearts, saying, Jesus, this is for you. You're coming in my life. This is what I have to offer. This is how I want you to enter into my world, to take my heart. Know that it belongs to you. This is your entry into my life. Take it. We get to give it to him and praise him as our rightful king. In our lives, I know we all have something that we can lay at the feet of Jesus. We all have something that we can say, you know what, Jesus, this is more important. This is more important. I need you. You are more important than this. I want you in my heart. I want to offer this to you. And that's a deep question if I were to ask people, what do you have to lay before Jesus? You may not even know the answer right now. But I know that we all have something we can lay before him and acknowledge who he is and how he is the rightful king of our lives. Now, when the king of kings, the son of God comes down, we welcome into our lives knowing undeniably he is the rightful king. Do we lay down the very coats that we wear as his carpet? Do we celebrate and cheer? Do we celebrate and shout Hosanna to the king of kings? Do we acknowledge that every scripture that we have read in the Old Testament, do, do we make these conscious thoughts? Everything we've read built up to this moment, not just for them then, but for us today when we accept them into our hearts, we can say, wow, everything led to this. My life choices, when, when Jesus started, those seeds started getting watered, it all led to this moment where I get to acknowledge him as king and lay my life down before him. When we, when we understand that, we get to understand why those moments when we acknowledge Jesus, not just when we first receive him, but at any point where we acknowledge him, this is worth the biggest celebration of our lives. This is worth acknowledging. This is worth our fanfare, and it requires nothing less than our whole heart. So Jesus establishes by riding on a donkey, he is the rightful king of Israel. And then he also shows us that he is the victorious king. Jesus shows us he is the victorious king. Now, people were celebrating because they knew that he was here to save them. But like I said, this was going to be a vastly different saving than what they had in mind. They had, in their mind, they, they were thinking they wanted this victory. Now, you don't get to have a party without a victory, right? In fact, the, the celebrating that was going on, this type of fanfare, this was done in very specific times. This was done when a king was leaving for war. You would see a king leaving and marching his army out. And you've probably seen movies or clips, you know, where there's, there's people screaming from the rooftops and flowers raining down. And the, the army and the king is marching out. And there's fanfare and celebrating because people are celebrating what they believe to be a victory in the war. Or it would happen on the return. When the kings come back with their victory and they have the spoils of war behind them, people screaming and cheering and throwing roses and, and everyone's just like, yes, we knew it was possible. We didn't think it would come, but it's here. This is fanfare. As a matter of fact, it was like the same way when I brought Stephanie home to meet my family. Dustin can get a girlfriend. It happened. You know, it's fanfare, celebrating. There are things in our life that are worth celebrating. And, and this in scripture, this is when you see it. You would see it when kings go to war. People go nuts. The way to enter this victory parade in our lives, when we get to have this moment where we get to have that fanfare, is when we call on Jesus for our salvation. When we say, Jesus, you are my victory. You are, you are the, the, the victory over death. You are what makes me, you, you've completed something, a work in me, God. You are now in my heart. That's when we get to have this massive celebration in our lives. Even though they did not yet in scripture understand what was gonna happen with the crucifixion and resurrection, they were asking their king right there for victory. They were celebrating what he was going to do. John chapter 12, verse 13 says this. They took branches of palm and went out to meet him. They cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. 
They welcome him as their savior, right? And, and some of us who have been in church for a while, and maybe even in children's ministry, sometimes, you know, they get the palm branches and they do kind of reenactment of waving the, the palm branches. Now, they did this because palm branches were an ancient symbol of victory. Um, so much so that during a Maccabean revolt, the Jews actually minted coins with images of a palm on them, which was symbolic of every time they spent money, they got to be reminded of their victory over this war of the, with the Greeks. And the word Hosanna is not just a word of praise, it's also a word of prayer. So much is said in one word. It actually comes from Psalm 18, where it's a cry for help. Psalm 118.25 says, O Lord, save us. And the translation is, O Lord, Hosanna. Later it became an invocation of a blessing and an acclamation of praise along with it. A spontaneous cry of greeting or a cry of homage, but in its most basic meaning, the most basic form of Hosanna, if you take that word, say, what does it, the core fundamental word Hosanna mean? It means save or save us. Save or save us. So therefore, by waving these palm branches, by shouting out Hosanna to the son of David, these people are crying out in joy and in victory and saying, God, you are here, or Jesus, you are here to save us. You are here for victory. Save us from the Roman oppressors. Save us from the politics. Save us from this, this horrible state that we're in. We are crying, Hosanna, you are amazing. Save us. They were looking for that political deliverance. They were looking for that freedom from Roman oppression. But that's not the victory Jesus came to win. Jesus didn't come to, to have victory over, over the politics and oppression. He came to give his life as an atonement for sin. The salvation he offered was deliverance from sin and deliverance from death. So when we ask for his salvation, when we say that Hosanna phrase to God, we say, God, you're coming in my life, Hosanna is to confess that we're guilty. It's to confess that we are in need of saving, that there is a flaw in us that only he can fix. Hosanna, it's partly that cry of victory, recognizes that Jesus has the power to save, but it also recognizes that cry of desperation, that, that cry of someone who says, I can't do this on my own. The cry of someone who says, I know that you have a plan and I definitely stepped off that plan at times and you are the only one that can bring me back. That's what we're saying when we shout out Hosanna. We're saying, Jesus, save me. Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus established he is that son of David. He was the righteous king and he came to have the ultimate victory, not a defeat unto death, but a victory that was bigger than anyone could have possibly imagined and it was literally going to rock their worlds when it happens in just a week after this time. But ultimately, submitting to his rule is the key to walking through this gift of salvation that Jesus gives us, that he gives us with his victory over death. And I love that in the next few weeks, we're going to build up to that. We're going to build up to that walking through and what, what the death means and ultimately what the resurrection means. Like we said, man, the difference a week makes, the last week of Jesus. And lastly, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem showed that he was the gentle king. Which is kind of funny because you think of all the fanfare we talk about and, and the kings and, and the, the fanfare and kings bringing in victories and war, but yet Jesus came as a gentle king. Not a king of war, but a gentle king. Remember, when a king rode into the city, it was a show of power and wealth. Kings didn't ride in secretly. They didn't ride in and say, don't tell anybody I'm coming in. No, it was always about the show, always about the party. It was not just to build motivation for the people, but it was also to strike fear in the, the enemies. If there was any spies in the town, they could see the size of this army and go, wow, we do not want to mess with that. They've got an army. They've got fanfare. They get celebration, right? It was a huge army bearing dazzles of prizes from the treasury. But here's the surprising thing. The rightful king, the victorious king, Jesus, comes in as a gentle king. 
He comes in to greet people not with pomp and circumstance, but with humility. He comes in with meekness, a total flip on the script of what was expected for this triumphal entry of royalty. Gentleness is one of the attributes that Zechariah mentions in his prophecy. He said in Zechariah 9.9, see your king comes to you gentle. Your king comes to you gentle. And the, the gentleness is symbolized by his mode of transport. He's not riding on this massive Clydesdale huge horse, right? It's not this big old power of look at the size of this beast I'm riding and it's under my command too. Let's go. He rides on a donkey, a lowly donkey, an animal that was meant to just bear weight and be, be a, just to, to carry loads, and it was not the sign of power at all. This is what Jesus rode in on. <clears throat> and it wasn't even his donkey. It was a borrowed donkey. How, how strange of a contrast is that, right, to the triumphal entry of, of warlords and powerful kings to the king of kings doing the exact opposite. This time, there was no wall that was breached for the army to come through. There was no garland hero standing on his chariot with, with maidens throwing kisses and tissues at him as he rode in. This was Jesus riding a donkey. He was riding down the cheering people that were screaming his name, but it was not with the show of power that people were used to. He wasn't carrying conquered kings and princes in chains behind him. He wasn't toting the spoils of war, saying, look what I've just defeated. Look what is now mine. He came on a lowly donkey a meek, humble man on a donkey. I think another indication of his gentleness is the relationship Jesus has with his subjects. Jesus doesn't rule with fear. Jesus, when he came here and got to talk with people, we get to see how he loved people like they were his family. They really were the sons and daughters of God. He treats them so justly. It says this in Zechariah's prophecy in 9.9. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, the word daughter there, I think, is a great reminder that as we're talking about how powerful God is, he looks at us, we are his kids. As powerful as he is, he still looks at us with the loving eyes of a father. The Old Testament often uses this language. Exodus 4.22 says, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And then in Isaiah 62, it says, say to the daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes. See, God's love for people is that love of a good father, that gentle love who adores his children. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll, be, I'll be at work late for, for various different things, and they go through seasons, and I know a lot of people have those seasons. Like, you, don't get, you leave early, you don't get home till late. Me, personally, I hate those days. But it's not just because of, it's not because of work. I love my job. I love what I do. But what I hate is if I leave in the morning and my kids are still asleep, and then I get home at night, and they're already in bed. Those are the worst days for me, the absolute worst days. I don't get to experience their love and their joy running around. So, so what I'll do is on those days when I get home, I will still go in, and I'll open up their door, and I'll, I'll see you know, Aurora. I'll see her, her head because everything is just so covered with every thick, massive blanket in the world. I swear that kid feels like she's going to freeze at night. And then I'll kiss her on the cheek and say, good night, princess. Daddy loves you. Then I'll go into Avery's room, and she's sprawled out across her bed, no blankets on. It looks like a slaughterhouse with all the stuffed animals flowing across the floor. Total opposite, right? But same thing. I'll go in there, kiss her cheek. Good night, princess. Daddy loves you. Most of the time, they don't say anything. They don't, you know, they're, they're deep in their snores at this point. Sometimes they'll murmur. Some, sometimes it'll be a murmured response. Like if, they, if I had caught them and they're not in too deep of sleep yet, you know, sometimes they'll say, love you too. Never open their eyes, but they're, they're sleeping. Sometimes they're in a deep sleep, 
and I'll give them a kiss, and they'll start to stir, and then I have to use my daddy ninja skills to get out of there as fast as I can, because if they wake up from that sleep, they're not going back to sleep. And I've got to get out and avoid the minefield of toys that are on the ground. <clears throat> but this tender love that I have for my daughters, as much as I love seeing them, and I love giving them that kiss and saying, good night, daddy loves you, this doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare to the tender love that God has for us. It's not even a close second when comparing to how much the love God has for his people. And out of the warmth of his heart, out of the warmth of his love, he sent his gentle son, son to be our righteous, victorious king. Now, don't mistake his gentleness for weakness. Don't mistake his gentleness for weakness. Zechariah in the same passage, uh, preceding verse 9-9, Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, right before it talks about the gentleness of God, you know what it talks about? He's going to kill people. It's an exact contrast. It's, it's a crazy contrast, right? It says how God's going to destroy ancient enemies like the Syrians and the Philistines. It promises that the same gentle king that is riding with humility is going to deliver people from mighty armies and overthrow and wipe out nations that have risen against him. With all their horses, it says, I will take away chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule with extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. I love how this, this verse about how gentle Jesus is is bookmarked with how powerful he is and all the things he's going to do to save his people. When Christ the king comes to proclaim to the nations, he comes to proclaim peace. The Hebrews called the shalom, and it is not the absence of warfare. What it is, it's, it's the presence of welfare. Shalom is God's fullest blessing of harmony and prosperity. And in order to bring this peace, in order to bring what's going to be the shalom to people, there is going to be a, a moment where God is going to disarm and overthrow and take away the enemy. So the same king that says, I'm going to come and be a gentle, loving king is also the king that says, but I can mess with you as well if you mess with me. The king that says, I love you, I want to be there for you, and I will keep you safe from everyone who comes against you. So here's this extraordinary combination of omnipotence and gentleness. Perhaps the best word that we have to describe it is meekness, which means power under control. There are some kings in scripture that would coddle their enemies. Um, the kings where the nation comes in and the king's like, oh my gosh, what do we have to pay these people to have them leave us alone? We'll do whatever you want. Please leave us alone. So they, they, they coddle the, the opposing force. And they're basically now living as subject to that opposing force. Or there's the kings that come in with all power and they want to go and overthrow and take over everything. But we have Jesus coming in, the meekest of kings. He is mighty and awesome at the same time. Strong and fierce, enough to crush his enemies, but also gentle, humble, and loving, all in one package. In the book of Malachi, Malachi asks a question. He says, who may abide in the day of his coming? The same Jesus who is tender, loving, and peaceful to everyone who trusts him, is gentle enough to care for us as his children. One way this is displayed, this unprecedented combination of omnipotence and gentleness was performing miracles of healing. I love that after announcing the coming of the king, um, Handel's Messiah quotes these words from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 35, five and six. It says, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. 
These are the very miracles Jesus came to show that he was the Messiah, right? When John the Baptist actually went through a point where he began to doubt what was going on, he was told in Matthew 11 that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead hear, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Since they fulfilled the prophets of the Old Testament, these miracles were proof that Jesus was this gentle Messiah because the way he did it was an amazing, gentle way. The miracle shows, a miracle requires supernatural power. Only God can bring total hearing to someone who is totally deaf. Only God can bring total sight to someone who is totally blind. Only God can raise somebody from the dead. These are, these are things only God can do. And I love that God does these amazing, powerful acts. But when you read how he does it in scripture, he does it in an incredibly gentle way. He often healed people with a gentle touch. Jesus touched people with various illnesses. Sometimes it was a gentle word, go and do this, and they were healed. With diseases like leprosy, he could touch, he could speak. By the power of his gentle voice and words, they were healed. A blind man came and begged Jesus to touch him. And when Jesus reached out and touched his eyes, he was healed. Then there was a man, an incredible, an incredible act of Jesus' arrest, gets his ear whacked off in the garden. Jesus calms the situation down gently, and heals the man's ear. Jesus has an incredible gentle touch that goes along with his power. He has the absolute authority and amazing meekness and gentleness to show how much God loves us. He was so gentle that people literally, he was like the first political figure where people said, kiss my baby. Luke 18 says people brought their babies to Jesus to be touched. He was that gentle. With the same regal grace, Jesus helps everyone who comes to him with their faith. His kingship doesn't treat people roughly, doesn't treat people rude, doesn't berate and belittle, but he brings you in an incredibly loving way with a gentle strength that brings, makes you whole. When we're disheartened, Jesus encourages you not to give up. And in our times of sorrow, it's Jesus' gentle hand that can wipe away our tears. Our rightful, victorious king has the power to help us with crushing victory and the gentleness to help us heal from our afflictions. A man named John Newton preached on uh, Zechariah 9 back in the 17th century. He explained how wonderful it is to serve Jesus, the gentle king. And he said this, Happy are these subjects who dwell under his shadow. He rules them, not with that rod of iron by which bruises and breaks the power of his enemies, but with a golden scepter of love. He reigns by his own right and by their full and free consent in their hearts. He reigns upon a throne of grace to which they have at all times access and from whence they receive, in answer to their prayers, mercy and peace, the pardon of all their sins, grace to help in every time of need, and a renewed supply answerable to all their wants, cares, services, and conflicts. Man, the fact that we are saved by such a gentle king means we get to show something in return. We get to show gentleness. When we show that gentleness, gentleness marks a healthy walk with Jesus. It, it shows that Jesus is actively at work in our lives. It shows that Jesus is having an effect that we then get to go out and, ble- and re- reach, reach into and have an effect on other people's lives. Galatians 5, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians, gentleness is one of those fruits. When Jesus comes into your heart, he can take something that, that maybe over time in different situations has made it hard and, and may, maybe there's bitterness in there, things that have just wronged you in some way. He can take that and form it and shape it and chip away bitterness and allow us to become gentle lovers of his word. Our lives get to be living demonstrations of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
Sadly, so, so many of us can be, we can get really harsh in our judgments. When things don't go our way or when someone disagrees with us, we can immediately, we can go from people that are really, really happy and love the world to someone says one thing and all of a sudden, what did you say? <laughs> you get angry, that wall comes up, someone says something that you really strongly disagree with and you just, you just, went, from, you just went from Bruce Banner to the Incredible Hulk in two seconds. You just flipped that switch and went nuts, right? We have the ability to do that when someone has an abrasive opinion to us especially during political season. We have a pandemic that's, that's sweeping the world that we're still navigating different things through. We have midterm elections coming up. This is gonna be a time right now where we can either let bitterness and power and anger be something that fuels conversations, or we can let the gentleness and meekness of, of God come through instead. I'll let, you, I'll let you think for yourselves on what one do you think is gonna have a bigger impact on who you're talking to? What one do you think is going to have a bigger impact on the kingdom of God, on how we present who Jesus is to us? Are we going to present power and judgment and, and harsh, harshness, or are we going to present a gentle, meek, humble king who loves the world as his kids? We can be rough in our handling of the weak. We can, we can think that we, we, we only picture God as that person who rides the high horse, who's just going to come and smite our enemies and forget that those same people we want to be smitten, it's a fun word to say sometimes, those people we want to be smitten, those are the same people God says, but I want them to love me. I want them to love me. I want their heart more than you want to smite them. I love those people. Philippians 4 or 5 says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Something of the, the Messiah's gentleness seemed to work its way into the heart of uh, Handel, the, the guy who wrote Handel's Messiah. He was, uh, from reports say, by no means a gentle man. He was, he was kind of a rough guy. But do you know what he did with all the proceeds of this song in particular? When he first promoted it, he said the money was going to be donated to the poor and the needy. Um, when, the, when it was first performed in Dublin, the newspaper said this, for relief of the prisoners in the several goals and for the support of Mercer's Hospital in, Mercer's Hospital in Stephen Street, for the charitable infirmary in Queen in the Inns Quay on Monday, March 12th, will be performed in the Music Hall and Fishamble Street. The first time, yeah, that's right. The very first time this was played, it was done for charity. And that tradition continued every time he went and played the song publicly. All the proceeds were given to charity. At that moment, he wanted his song about this Hosanna, here comes God, here is Jesus is here. He said, this is gonna be something that benefits the needy. I want to show the power and the gentle and loving rule of Jesus. His generosity was keeping in with the character of Jesus himself who healed the sick, who healed the sick and he loved hearing the children sing. I'd like to invite the worship team up as we, we close this morning. And I love that when we, we talk about this entry, no wonder the crowds gave Jesus such a royal welcome. He was coming with all power, all authority, and all gentleness to be the rightful, victorious, and gentle king. This, uh, he approached Jerusalem at the start of the Passover feast. There were hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that were crowding into Jerusalem. And as he came and mounted his donkey, he would have been surrounded by people going up into Jerusalem. And when he reached the Mount of Olives and looked over the city, he would have seen people starting to stream out of their cities and gates. Word would spread. Jesus was coming. He was here. He was going to enter. He was going to bring freedom. There were people that were already outside of the city to greet him. And as he rode down, there were people in front, behind, around, waving palm branches, throwing down their robes, making the procession. Shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
this is the kind of welcome Jesus deserves. When we enter into his presence, we get to say, Hosanna, Jesus, save me. You are right. You are victorious. And I get to be in that victory with you. The son of David, the true and rightful king. Would you stand with me? Today, as we leave, as we, as we take this month to prep for Easter, let that be something that really resonates with our hearts. Let that be something that resonates with our, our interactions and the way we, we speak with people and, and handle people and, and just the, the people we come across in our everyday life. Let them see that we are living that life of gentleness, that, that meekness. Let them see that we get to look at Jesus and we say, Hosanna, Jesus, save me. And let our love and kindness show them that Jesus can save them too. Jesus loves them and he wants them. Let's live in that victory that he proclaimed. Let's let the gentleness that he ruled guide our hearts and interactions. Amen. God, I thank you for today. I thank you that you, ha- you are the victory. God, you, you ride in. We get to say, Hosanna, Jesus, save us. But also, Jesus, you are victorious. God, you, you already beat death. You already conquered our sin. God, we get to live in that freedom. We get to live in that victory. And I pray that our interactions, our lives, our hearts show that with people. God, we show your love. We show your gentleness, your kindness. And that leads people to you and that they get to join us in celebrating what we get to on Easter, the most amazing, incredible victory in history. We thank you, God. We love you. And everybody said, amen.